the living surface has claimed more victims this week. Yes. We've spent all this time talking about the surfaces and the differences in the organic materials, and I feel like we overlooked the fact that grass is in fact a living surface, that it's an entity that hungers and it must be fed. Yes, it's, it's alive. It's alive. I was thinking we were onto something with the clay. I was like, wow, the clay, it's organic. I never thought of that, you know, so earthy. But the grass, it's so vital. It cannot be tamed. It's subject to the weather conditions and becomes slippery and the curators can't control it. If players slip over and hurt themselves, it's not that they didn't prepare the surface well, it's that the surface itself is alive and has its own will, its own thinking, its own um, reaction to the environment. Yeah, right. Clay is just inert material, whereas the grass, grass will grow. It does actually need to be fed and maintained, and it can get wild and the environment affects it in different ways, unexpected ways. And I do wonder if the grass has developed a hunger because it was ignored for so long. You know, it was an entire year without play on, on Wimbledon's grass courts. Well, two years. Yeah, two years. A year without play passed. They come back and it just, it just so happens that the season has been very humid and that the grass is kind of lush. You know, one of the early stories of the event is that the slipperiness of the surface has, uh, you know, has taken players out. I mean, most notably, it took Serena Williams down. Yeah. Um, when when she was looking good, we thought that perhaps um, this was her best, last, best chance to win the 24th Grand Slam. Mm. Um, really such a high-profile high victim, and it almost saved another high-profile player, Roger Federer, I think. He admitted that Adrian Manorino was playing the better tennis, and in that fifth set, were it not for slipping on the grass, perhaps Adrian would have taken Roger out in the first round. That's true. I wonder what kind of sacrifices Roger has made to the grass surface that we don't know about, that has... Uh preserved his status on the surface because uh yeah that manorino match he was looking very old and very very concerned he had battled back and was looking to take the fourth set and certainly it would be hard to bet against him in a fifth but manorino was solid and you could see i mean manorino is not a guy who really demonstrates any emotion kind of sucks it out of the match actually but like he was heartbroken walking off that court. He slipped and fell. I think he had a knee injury, which is also kind of ironic since Federer is coming off of multiple knee surgeries. He just couldn't push off when he was trying to serve anymore. He had to retire. Yeah. Many victims sacrificed to the living surface this week. Including a ball kid, actually. Had to be stretched off uh, the other day. Wow, I didn't see that. What happened? I only read the report, but apparently a ball kid fell over and couldn't get up. Like, it had a, quite a serious injury, and play was stopped for a while, and uh, they had to bring a stretcher onto the court to take the kid off. So, you know, it sounds like a serious knee injury or ankle or something like that. The hunger of the court, 
you know, is perhaps a little bit indiscriminate. It also claimed the contents of Almsjipper's stomach. <laughs> I couldn't believe when I saw this uh, flood of yellow go. She went to the back of the court in that third set when she was serving for the match. Yeah, I think it was prior to her serving uh, with match point, actually, and it was really startling. It was interesting, Matt, because you had texted me. You actually told me twice that I should watch that match. Oh, it was such a good match. I was like, Matt, you don't have to tell me twice, all right? Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm on it. Um, but, yeah, so, like, Amstraber, it was in a way, I think because you had told me about the match and I was really excited to watch it, in a way, it wasn't fully living up to the hype in my mind because Jabert kind of ran away with the third set. Like she just started to take over the match and was dominating. But the the vomit, the vomit mat. I mean, it was it was really interesting the emotional impact it had on me to see her react like that under that kind of stressful circumstance. I, like I'm sitting on the couch very calmly, you know early day like maybe having a cup of coffee and all of a sudden I'm like oh I can tangibly sense how Onstripper is is feeling inside right now I also got afraid I was like what if she blows it from from that position I suppose players are often dealing with really intense nerves like that and throwing up is not not an uncommon response to to extreme stress but um yeah it was really startling to see yeah um it didn't seem like she was that nervous she was playing really well as you said she was running away with that third set just playing some really um you know how she plays she she hits like an attacking backhand and she comes to net and she she played that drop shot so beautifully and you need to hold your nerve to hit a good drop shot i don't know the physicality of the effort um because she had that vomit and she was fine after that, and she, when she won the match, she gave a good interview and everything. It didn't seem to really affect her. It was just like this mm. physical thing that she needed to get out of her onto the living surface, which is such a great surface to vomit on. You know, if it was hardcore, you would see the vomit, but the grass just ate it up. Yeah, the grass just uh, just accepted it as a uh, as a substitute for the for the blood and souls that it was about to consume. I mean, taking Garbinia Muguruza, who is a Wimbledon champion, that was a hefty meal for the living surface. And in the end, uh, at the end of this tournament, um, the grass is going to eat a lot of hefty meals. There'll, there'll only true. be one player standing. Yeah, I mean, it's 127 players per side. So that's uh, 254 men and women. I don't know. I, I guess it, like if you retire before uh, the match, that your blood and souls do not get consumed by the court. And then it needs an additional sacrifice. Um, if you retire, you're saying that you somehow avoid being consumed? It, only if you retire before the match, right? Like uh, Denis Shapovalov got a walkover in his second round match. He didn't even have to take the court. Pablo Andujar decided, I will live to play another day. I don't want to be eaten by the grass court, by the living surface. Mm. Um, so he just he just opted out of the whole thing, and I think that's why we're getting these additional uh, sacrifices, like the ball kid, like the ball kid, yes, like the ball kid, like the vomit. It hungers. Denis Shapovalov defeated Andy Murray, sacrificing one of uh, the United Kingdom's great loves, 
and hopes. I was actually wondering if maybe the surface wouldn't claim Andy Murray because of his metal hip. Everybody keeps talking about his metal hip, which is really kind of amazing to consider. It, it makes me wonder if we're not headed towards some future where great athletes just play into their 50s because they have replacement surgery. I wonder if we're going to have to like have rules about not allowing cyborgs to play. Taylor Fritz, this was another story that's really gotten my attention because I, I have a knee injury from running right now. Yeah. Um, it, it seems like maybe it's like mild arthritis or something. I don't know. I might, I might have to get an MRI in a few weeks. But um, anyway, it's like a minor injury and I haven't been able to run in two months. And meanwhile, Taylor Fritz has like a serious knee injury that requires surgery and he's back on the tennis court playing uh, best of five Grand Slam tennis three weeks later. It's wild and he has this like strapping on his leg he un he unfortunately lost to sasha zverev today the court consumed his uh his remaining viable limbs but yeah very impressive and very impressed with andy murray even though i don't don't always really love watching him play I, i've never really taken to andy murray I, I i like his you know his late career act and just his his dedication and his willingness to play, I, I think it's cool. And to to do it after coming back from hip replacement surgery is just just incredible. Yeah, and the, the crowd loves it. Um, you said Andy Murray from the United Kingdom, which is technically true, but of course he's from Scotland. And um, the Scots were playing in the Euro uh, Soccer League, uh, the Euro, Euro European Championships. And uh, he he's now he says that he's supporting England because mm. Scotland have been eliminated. I find yeah that's um, certainly indicative of the way he embraces and has been embraced by Wimbledon and not just Scotland uh, and people who are Scottish, but everyone in the United Kingdom takes him as one of their own, and he he repays that by buying into the whole United Kingdom at a time where Scotland is still trying to fight for its independence and secede from the United Kingdom. Yeah. Do we know how uh, Andy Murray feels about that politically? Because he, he does seem to be like, you know, fairly left of center. Like, is that, And I actually don't know if the, uh, the secessionists tend to, to fall along those lines. I don't know what he feels about Scottish independence. I'd be surprised if he wasn't pro-Scottish independence. I don't see him as a royalist. Um, mm. But what I do know about Andy Murray is because, um, like, the Wimbledon's been making a show of um, featuring like uh, COVID COVID vaccine scientists um, and uh, nurses and mm. um, first responders, and they've given them um, you know spots in the royal box and invited them to the tournament and standing standing ovations and everything. But at the same time, the UK government has proposed this 1% pay rise for um, the National Health Service staff, which mm. actually is a pay cut because inflation is 1.5%, right? And um, Andy Murray has taken aim at the UK government and is speaking out against it, which is great to see because he, mm. he wants the workers, um, these health workers, to get a decent pay rise, not this crappy 1% that the... Um, Tory government is is giving them so it's yeah I love it when a player is um shows their their colors politically and whilst I don't know about Scottish independence I hope he's a uh, he is for Scottish independence he's certainly on the right side in the um in terms of workers rights 
Yeah, right. Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, he's also probably one of the most notable male feminists uh, in sport, uh, generally. He's just sort of unequivocally supportive of women's efforts to receive equal pay and treatment on tour. And, you know, and also just in kind of like general passive ways, like he's uh, he's a fan of the sport and he clearly loves watching the women's game and, you know, um, boosting and uh, talking up great women's matches and great female players. Um, I know he was supportive of Emma Raducanu, Raducanu, Raducanu. Um, it's, it's funny when a player is so new that you haven't really internalized how to pronounce their name yet. Let's do that. Let's do that here. Um, okay, let's uh, Emma Raducanu, 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 internalize. Raducanu, 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 Raducanu. She's from London, but she came by Canada, and her heritage is parents from, what'd you say, Romania? Romania and China. Yeah, I got to see her play for the first time today. She won her third round match against Serana Kerstea. Serana Kerstea has been around long enough for me to pronounce her name correctly. But unfortunately, she doesn't win enough for me to talk about her very often. And she was having a good run, and she took out Vika Azarenka, which was a really big win for her. And it seems like uh, Kerstea has kind of had a, a strong recent run of play and maybe this is projection but i couldn't help but think that like she was just gutted to be losing to a teenager you know just for some of the older players you know an older player who's like you know kind of just having a little bit of a moment and just got a nice little run underway and you run into somebody who's playing their second ever grand slam event and um radukanu looks like the real deal like she She's got it, Matt. She's got something special going on. She's energetic, positive, like kind of fearless going for her shots. She kind of reminds me of Simona Halep in her retrieval. Mm. Like she's just running down everything in the corners and getting impossible balls back into play. But she's got this wicked shape on her shots. And she would hit these balls I thought were definitely going to sail long and they would actually dip well within, well inside of the court. So she's got a little bit of like a, like a magician's top spin. Very excited about her run. And she's coming up against Isla Tamjanovic from Australia, who's, you know, also, you know, kind of, kind of a journey person on tour. Yeah, I would say. But uh, very much a, a winnable match for Radu Kanu. And she's the last She's the last Brit standing in singles. Dan Evans went out uh, to uh, young American hopeful Seb Korda, which was, which was a pretty exciting match. I enjoyed watching that one. He looks like the real deal, doesn't he, Seb Korda? Very much so. Had you watched him previously? I'd seen a little bit of him, but um, he just uh, seemed so mature in the way he's been playing this tournament. So assured. I mean, he's only, what, is he 18? He, he turns 21 during his next match, so... Okay, well, he looks like the fully formed, self-assured... He's only just made it, cracked it into the top 100, but he already looks like he's headed for top 20, for sure. For sure, if not higher. I mean, he has a real opportunity. I mean, that quarter of the draw is pretty open right now. I mean, he's there with... Uh, he plays Karen Hatchinoff next, and then the winner of that will play the winner of Denis Shapovalov and R- Roberto Batista Agu. So I don't know, I guess this is kind of what's ha- what happens when the big f- four are reduced to just Novak Djokovic, 
and uh, you know, like both team and Tsitsipas team didn't play this tournament. Tsitsipas lost in the first round to Francis TFO. You know, like some of the some of the heralded younger players aren't playing so well on grass. So it's a it's a huge opportunity. And and yeah, and Seb, I it's interesting because I don't you know I don't normally take to more stoic players, but there's something about his energy that I find really appealing to watch. Like he's got, and I think maybe, maybe part of it is just kind of the way he looks, you know, he wears this tight headband and kind of like it pushes his blonde hair back and he just has this really striking figure, Corda. And he's not emotionless. He's just very composed, like composed in a way that none of these, none of the young players tend to be, you know? Um, yeah, I, I, re- I really like his game and I'm, I'm excited about him. I mean, it, it would be nice for the U.S. to have somebody who is actually able to compete for slams. And at the moment, it's looking like he might actually get to that level, uh, which would be cool for American tennis. Yeah, he's the one, right? Uh, him and maybe Coco Golf uh, on the women's side are the, the next generation of potential U.S. number one Grand Slam champion hopefuls. Yep, for sure. Yeah, I mean the the U.S. has certainly had its uh, its share of riches on the on the women's side. You know, speaking of which, uh, um, like Sophia Kennan uh, lost in the second round and looked terrible. Bianca Andreescu got beaten pretty handily in the first round by um, Elise Cornet. It's just so interesting how this keeps happening on the women's side. Like recent winners seem to really have a hard time following it up. I mean, Andreescu had a, had a ton of injuries and was out of the game for a long time. And it's starting to it's starting to become concerning for me as somebody who's a big fan of her game, that she's just not able to kind of get any kind of rhythm, that she's losing to unseeded players early in slams. And uh, similarly with Kennan, I love watching Kennan uh, win that Australian Open title. Uh, she's my dreams come true girl. You know, and she made that run at the French. And now what? I, it's unclear what's going on with her. It's really... Um, yeah, kind of, kind of sad and unfortunate. Does she have um, uh, emotional stuff going on? Yeah. Do you think like cause she, she seems like a you know someone who wears their heart on their sleeve and um, that kind of thing? She had some stuff with her. She broke up with her dad. Yeah, breaking up with your dad is um, that's that's a difficult thing to do. Her dad was her coach and obviously was uh, working with her throughout her childhood. Was always there. Her dad also seems like a complete basket case. Like he's almost, he's almost like the caricature of like a neurotic Russian Jew from New York. I mean, it was hilarious to watch him in her box, but you could also see like his anxiety was so intense. I imagine it's pretty hard for a young woman who's like coming into adulthood and, you know, realizing her own potential. So it's, you know, who knows how much that's affecting her emotional state. Oh, one thing we sh- we should talk about is that Kerber versus Suribes Tormo match. Sarah Suribes Tormo, SST, as I like to call her. I I remember you bringing her up for the first time. You said that she's the 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 name struck you. You said it sounded like some kind of um. It sounds like a storm or an event or like a, a meteorological event. Huh, interesting. I didn't say that, but um, it sounds like something I would say. And now that I'm looking at her name, I, I can kind of see the resemblance. I, I think that when I brought up Cerebes Tormo, or when she caught my attention for the first time, was when she played Bianca Andreescu at Miami. She's just this utterly ferocious, 
hellcat of a player. I mean, she's just totally dogged. And her uh, her idol is actually David Ferrer from Spain. She got to meet him when she was really young. And Ferrer was known for just like unmatched work ethic and like punching way above his weight. And that's kind of how Cerebus Tormo feels like she feels like a like a female David Ferrer down to like this guttural grunting sound that's like really upsetting to watch. So uh, just based on audio alone like Kerber Cerebus Tormo was not something I was like super keen to watch but I put it on and it was just immediately captivating you know and it is the sort of match that the commentators couldn't help but commentate on how incredible the level was basically after every other point they were just continually in these like cat and mouse back and forth rallies pushing each other around the court all kinds of diversity of play and expression and you know big swings in the match in terms of like you know somebody up a break and fighting back and like it it was almost like too intense of a match like it didn't seem like it had there were no dips like they were just first ball to last engaged in battle and um yeah Cerebus Tormo came up a bit short in the end yeah that was that was a fun one to watch and it was sort of a it was a reminder that Cerebus Tormo is you know, is a really high quality player. And, you know, I saw her playing well on hard court, thought she would be a great clay quarter because of the way she scrambles and retrieves. But here she is on grass. This match felt like a clay court match, like the grind of it, but it wasn't really something to behold. I think it was the longest women's match of the tournament as well. Yeah, it was a good one. Mm. Well, they've been saying that, uh, you know, because of the extra rain and the lushness of the grass, the grass is playing a bit slower. So it does... Hmm. sort of you know benefit more of a clay court scrambling kind of style more more so than usual anyway um but yeah that's that's great but she she ran into um angelique kerbo who's having somewhat of a research somewhat of a resurgence yeah it seems like whenever whenever the moon is in capricorn angie kerber decides to play well she just has years where she seems like she's becoming non-viable as at least as a like a actual slam contender and then uh years where she's winning slams and is number one in the world yeah she looks uh looks to be in pretty good shape at the moment although she's coming up against coco goff in uh in the round of 16 so i'm the winner of that to play either bedosa or mukova in the quarterfinals pretty good draw for Kerber or Goff will be interesting to see what happens there. I'm also really curious to see uh, Barty and Krajikova in the round of 16. Krajikova once again flying under the radar, just coming in off of a slam victory. Yeah, I was interested to see how she'd back up after winning the French Open, and I was pleasantly surprised to see her win a third round match yesterday. Her doubles partner. Oh yeah, so so Barty's playing. Both of them. She she just beat Siniakova. That's true. Yeah, I watched some of that match today. It was straight sets, but um, Siniakova put up a fight, right? Yeah, she she put up a fight in the second set. Like she was down two breaks, and in fact, on uh, on the ESPN coverage, uh, Brad Gilbert had this whole thing about like once Siniakova was broken for the second time, Brad Gilbert was like, "Chrissy, that's a that's a trunk slammer." And uh, and Chris Everett is like, I don't know what the hell you're talking about, BG. <laughs> and and he had to explain like, well, you know, you get down a set and two breaks, 
It's basically like put your bags in the trunk of the car and slam it and hit the road, you know. So of course, Siniakova then like uh, fights her way back to to level. Like she got both brakes back, had it even, um, but couldn't hold serve in the end. And Barty Barty was just a bit too good. But yeah, Siniakova's Siniakova's one of my like uh, under the radar deep cut favorites. She's really she shows a lot of emotion and she's. Taken down seeds at slams before and had had big runs more on more on clay I think than than on grass. Yeah, I think she just reached the fourth round at um, Roland Garros and and looked the singles player uh, more likely out of that doubles pairing with her and Krajikova to do something. But of course, it was Krajikova who uh, came from nowhere to win the French Open and now has made the fourth round, so really establishing herself as a singles player now. Um, and can she? She could. She could beat Barty. But Barty's also looking good and has to be the favorite now with Halep, no Halep and no Venus Williams. Um, no Serena Williams, sorry. No Venus Williams either, but we didn't expect her to, to do anything really. Yeah, I don't, I don't see why Barty can't win the Wimbledon for the first time. Yeah, she's always been kind of known to favor the grass. And um, she just looks too solid right now. Like for all this talk about the women who seem to struggle with consistency, I mean, this is true of Kerber. This is true of of Muguruza, who uh, had a great start to her year and seemed like she was rounding into form, and then uh, and then got taken down in this tournament. You know, uh, like Barty is sort of the is sort of the consistent figure right now. She's the one who seems most reliable, and yet she's only won the one slam, and she has had some disappointing losses deep in slams. So she's still pretty far from a sure thing. I just feel like she's the type of player who's no longer, she's not going to get beaten in the first week by a scrub. Not that there are very many scrubs out there, but you know, early in the, early in the tournament, the number one seed is likely to face some qualifiers or she's not as likely to get pushed in, in those kinds of environments. But I think she's got a very good chance of taking down Krajikova, Radukanu or Tom Janovic, in the quarters, that seems like a favorable matchup for her, favorable draw. And then, yeah, I think either Kerber or Goff in the semis. So then it starts to get tricky. Then you start to run into players who uh, who definitely have the capacity to take her down. And uh, yeah, the women's draw is fascinating, actually. It's really just just good, interesting draws, like good opportunities for players to break through. Um, I think that's one of the reasons this uh, this Wimbledon's been such a pleasure. Well, that's the top half of the draw, and I really wouldn't, still wouldn't count Krajikova out. I reckon that's like a fascinating matchup, her and Barty. But um, what mm-hmm. about the bottom half of the draw? Are you across that? You seem to be very across the potential matchups. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at the tennisabstract.com beta uh, website for my draws, and it's, uh, it's you know, it's lay, it lays them out very nicely for me while also giving the statistical probabilities. You know, and so I think that's why I was thinking that Ash Barty uh, probably is going to roll Krujikova because it favors her 89 to 11%. That seems a little high. I mean, uh, Krujikova just coming off the French Open victory. Seems a little high. Yeah. I think it, the thing is about their model is that it very much considers uh, court, um, like surface history. And uh, I think Krajikova has basically no no history on grass to speak of at all. Yeah. Um, like, I think she won one tour match on grass before this year. So, but yeah, like, we're also just talking about players who are emerging. I mean, it's the same thing for Raducanu. I'm pretty sure that 
the, this model would not have given her good odds to win anything. Um, and it still has her at, with a 0% chance of winning, which, uh, you know, that's, it's a, it's just a model. It's a, it's a guess it's based on what information is available. So anyway, um, the bottom half of the draw, it's, it feels a bit more open, right? Like Sabalenka is the top seed. Um, and she has always stumbled in, you know, late in, in slams. I don't think she's ever been past a fourth round. Uh, she's got Rabakana next, which feels winnable, but it's Sabalenka, so we don't know. Um, the big matchup to watch is Sviantek and Jabir in the in the round of 16. Sviantek's also this player who kind of down-talks herself on grass, even though she won Junior Wimbledon. She's a French Open champion. Ons Jabir look, is looking pretty great, looking pretty strong right now. I, I'm really excited to see that one. I, I would like to see Jabir come through as much as I like Sviantek. And then at the top, you've got uh, Pliskova playing Samsonova and Keys playing Golubich. And I don't really know much about Golubich, but uh, Samsonova I got to see the other day and she really struck me because she has, she's also got a very noteworthy scream. Like her scream, I called it a soul scream because it was just reverberating through center court in this very disturbing manner. Not, not in a way that like, you know, like actually like frightened me. She, she's really ferocious and uh, she's got a big game, but also, you know, also a pretty big personality. She's very noticeable out there and is letting you know how she feels. And, um, you know, uh, which will be a sharp contrast with uh, Karolina Pliskova, who is a little, a uh, little flat emotionally. Uh, let me just put it that way. Yeah. I saw Samsonova interviewed after after she won that third round match and made it into the second week. And she's been playing like the challenger, the ITF, the lower tier tournaments. She was ranked mm, three, yeah. 300 or something last year and just has won a tournament to get here and is, uh, I think just really happy, like really happy to, um, to be to be playing on the big stage and just seems really free and doesn't have any expectations. And, um, it's always lovely to see and means that she doesn't have the same pressure that other players necessarily have about the expectation. Right. So she could be dangerous, dangerous. She's just enjoying her time at Wimbledon. Just everything I've seen, the crowds are so welcoming. The players are so happy to be there. The grounds just look beautiful. Mm. So lush and green. Um, I really think it must be the prettiest tournament of all the four Grand Slams. Yeah, I I suspect that in person it must be pretty glorious. You know, especially in the first week before the before the living surface gets um battered and bruised by all of the play. But um yeah, the grounds look really lush. And you know, they they were talking uh they had a little piece on ESPN today where they were showing uh Wimbledon's the Wimbledon Village which is where a lot of the players normally stay. You know, it's kind of like in the town and that just looks super charming and inviting. And um, I kind of, I feel a little reticent to try to go to Wimbledon because it just feels like such an effort. Um, I'm not going to wait in the queue. I refuse to do that. I would like to buy a ticket and then go to the event. I, I will not fucking camp overnight to see Wimbledon. Like I just, I think that's a, a ridiculous thing to ask. Well, you can't just buy a ticket. You have to. Well, it's, it's complicated. There's a lot. So they have a lottery. Basically you have to like enter the lottery 
for multiple years before you'll have the right to buy tickets directly. And then when you do that, like you, you only get to go to like us, like one day. Um, it's not like other events where, you know, like the U S opens coming up and I'm, I'm planning on attending. I've booked my Airbnb. I'm going to be in flushing. I'm, I'm ready to go. And there's going to be an on sale in July. And then when the sale happens, I'll go buy tickets and and like grounds passes are not hard to get. And furthermore, if somebody like that, all of the tickets are now handled through the, like they can only be resold through the same venue through Ticketmaster or whatever. And so you can't get scalp tickets. You can only buy, you could buy you, you can buy tickets that other people are giving up that they don't want, but they can't inflate the prices. And I had this experience last time I went to the U S open where I was hanging around the city for the second week. And I thought like, Oh, there's a good like quarterfinal matchup. Let me see if I can get a ticket. And then I just like got a ticket and went. Wimbledon is not like that. It is a pain in the ass. Yeah. It's, it's so elite, isn't it? I mean, like I love the idea of being there. It looks so beautiful and the, the, the crowd seems so happy. And, but to, mm. you know, like to be a member, um, is really the only way you're going to be able to just hang out and see all the matches. Um, if it's that difficult to get a ticket, I hate that. I hate that it's, uh, a normal person can't really get there. Yeah, I mean, I think all normal people do. I mean, this is the thing about the queue is that the queue is the great like equalizer in a way. But I also think it's dramatically unfair because it it asks people sacrifice immense amounts of time and comfort in order to attend. You know, so the idea that the queue is actually making access to Wimbledon more democratic is kind of bullshit too. But it's you know, there's a supply and demand problem too. It's it's a smaller grounds than the other slams at the moment i think the the french is pretty small too but they're they've been expanding and wimbledon has all these expansion plans and i think they're kind of like they're realizing they have to normalize a bit this year because of covid they did actually have like some kind of regular ish sale for, of tickets and they didn't have the queue um but they, apparently that's all coming back next year so um i don't know i need to research it more it's the only slam i haven't been to I certainly would love to go. It's just it's just a question of how to make it happen. Yeah, I would like to go too. But uh, yeah, it seems a long way off um, with COVID at the moment, um, being able to travel. Yeah. I love this, these little things that happen when you're watching television and you're watching one of those feeds where you know there's it's there's not an ad break because it's like a court that no one's really watching and Mm -hmm. uh you hear a a snippet of conversation of just a couple of workers doing their job i heard this guy say do you want to do the towels and then the response was someone's coming to do the towels do you want to do the chairs Hmm. and that's all i heard it was a conversation about two people doing their jobs, like moving chairs and towels around. Mm. That was a nice moment for me because it brought it back to something very real and um, distinct from the pomp and circumstance of the real box. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I like how you remember to shift your attention away from all the celebrity and the elite athletes and right at Wimbledon you've got the royal box yeah there was there was a t- there was a time at the Australian Open a few years ago where I, I was like 
mostly attending by myself and to occupy myself. I was, I basically started a little Instagram series and I, you know, at some point I've gotten self-conscious about posting photographs of uh, live tennis matches because it just feels like nobody cares and it's very repetitive and not interesting to people who weren't there. Yeah. So I was like looking around the grounds for, you know, for things to, to photograph that were not the tennis, you know, so like here's, here's a broom attached to the side of a door, you know, here's, here's a, a, wa- a leaking water faucet. Um, um, just trying to find you know, it's like an angle on something else. Because also the experience of tennis for me is, like it's it's forever changed from going to the slams, like from actually attending and, and being on the grounds and like feeling the atmosphere and, you know, being around other people who are, who are engaged with the tennis and just the whole breadth of tennis and, you know, the sort of the festival nature. You know, there are no towel kids now because um, apparently COVID spreads very uh, dramatically through sweaty towels. So um, the athletes are still retrieving their own towels. I know Alex uh, really likes that the athletes retrieve their own towels, but I, I hope that um, the towel boys and girls are uh, a return to duty at some point. There's something I enjoy about watching them go about their business and their interactions with the players. and. You know, how they frantically try to dry the court when things are getting a little bit wet. Yeah. Um, which, yeah. by the way, seems like a possible low-rent solution to some of the slippage problems they were having this week. Uh, towel, toweling dry the surface? Maybe they need to find some kind of hair dryers and, you know, just get an army of people out there with hair dryers just kind of, like, making the surface a little bit less damp. But... You know, towels would probably help. Yeah, um, I guess I imagine on grass, it's not like you can, you can't rub the surface too much or you like rip it. Yeah, that's true. You'd have to kind of like pat it, blot the surface. Yeah. Yeah, you have to pat the surface. Yeah. And also, you know, the moisture is just kind of contained in that, in the earth there. It really needs like a lot of sun to come and dry it out Mm. yeah it's true so perhaps the towel wouldn't be very effective after all I question I question how effective the towel would be David and not to not to um, completely dismiss your idea but I have questions (laughs) fair enough fair enough balls David balls tell me about balls Matt the balls have magic right they um have a magic to them so Richard Gasquet when he wins a point he needs that ball if he's serving he needs that ball to come back to him wherever it goes you know like he's he serves an ace it's up the other end of the court he waits for the ball kid to send it back to him and he's gonna use that ball again to serve Mm-hmm. Um, or he wins a win, even if it's an error from the other player, he's going to get that ball back because mm. that's his winning ball, and that ball has a magic. But I noticed if he serves a let, so the ball hits the net and he's, and still goes in, and it's still a first serve, he doesn't want that ball back anymore. Interesting. The ball has lost its magic. Yeah. I just noticed it. I don't. I haven't heard him talk about it. 
I mean, I wonder if the receiver hit the ball straight back to him so that he could easily catch it, would he want it again? But it seems like it's done. He's on to the next ball, the ball's lost its magic. And of course, if he loses the next point, he doesn't want that ball back. Yeah, the other thing that players do when they're serving is they, you know, they look at the balls and then like get three or four balls and then decide on the one they want and then discard the ones back to the ball kids that they don't want. Apparently that is because you want, for your first serve, you want a, not, a ball that's not fluffed up so it flies better. But right. for a second serve, you want a fluffed up ball because um, you can get more spin on it. You can it will be a bit more accurate for a second serve. And Serena Williams doesn't care about that. She just gets whatever ball. She doesn't care about the magic of which ball. She's just taking whatever ball comes her way. In every situation, she doesn't she doesn't do the like ball evaluation or like the like the subtle ball squeeze and then like take one from the ball kit and then immediately hit it back to them. She doesn't do that. She doesn't do that. Hmm. I, I think it was um, Moritoglu, the coach, was saying this that she's one person who doesn't, doesn't she doesn't mind. She just gets whatever ball. She just gets on with her business. Yeah, right. I like that. Yeah, I like that too. I, I also like the, you know, obsessive, compulsive, superstitious kind of, you know, routine that, that players undergo. And I do think there's a bit of personality in that and like sort of just how they've, I, I think that is probably never really conscious. You know, it's not something like, it's funny because I've made fun of uh, Rafa for his, you know, his like, you know, victorious point celebration routines, like suggesting a, that they might be, you know, choreographed, that he works on them in private in front of a mirror. It's so routine, the the retrieving, the accepting of balls and then the, the dismissing of balls. I think that the players do end up in habitual behavior, but they don't realize it at all. Like they would not be able to tell you, like, what do you usually do when you're receiving a ball? Um, like, you know, some of them, they take it on the racket and maybe they'll just like, they, the first one they receive, they reject out of hand. Like, I think there's these sort of like, uh, habitual behaviors that emerge, but are just, just kind of automatic after a while. I, I know I once went with a friend who was not a tennis fan to some live tennis, probably at the Australian Open. And they were noticing, they really honed in on the, the ball re rejection acceptance routine. Like they were just fascinated by it. And um, I think part of that is also because you have the, the ball kids have their whole like choreographed routine about like accepting and offering balls. You know, they've got like, it's sort of like an air traffic control maneuver set that they do. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Love all the little details there. Yeah, um, I, I do too. I was, I was um, surprised that Serena's, Serena doesn't buy into it because it's such a... You know, it feels like such a thing everyone does and that you need that, you know, there's a strategic advantage in selecting the right ball and getting the freshest ball, the different types of ball that you want for your first and second serve. And then just, you know, the way it can, can calm you down and give you a moment to gather your thoughts before um, you serve. But yeah, I really respect that she doesn't care about that kind of, kind of stuff. Breaking news was delivered in the past 24 hours. Um, we learned that Novak Djokovic 
was apparently raised by wolves in the mountains of Serbia. And uh, part of it, I think, also comes from uh, my upbringing in the mountains. I, I spent a lot of time in the mountains with wolves, so this is a wolf energy record. <laughs> from this experience of growing up amongst uh, wild packs of hungry wolves, Novak uh, has instilled within himself a, a what he calls a wolf energy um, that allows him to kind of work his way through these through these difficult matches with a ferocity and a hunger that is unmatched by his opponents. Uh, what do you think about that, Matt? He really was in the mountains with the wolves, kind of scared by them, but also kind of intrigued and interested. Yeah, they, they apparently like left an imprint upon him as a child. But what's curious to me is that this has never really like been discussed before. You know, like it, it does sort of seem like a like a post hoc, like retrospective fantasy that he's concocted, um, you know, and, and that's all well and good. Like the idea that, you know, he he has an affinity with a with a species of animal that, you know, from which he can derive all of this power and energy. What is wolf energy? <laughs> well, um, I like to think about wolves as um, as my kind of. Uh, spiritual nature nature guide, so to say. I really do because I, I've seen some wolves when I was a kid, uh, kind of roaming in the in the forest, in the woods of, of the mountain where I grew up. And that encounter kind of left me uh, frightened and at the same time even more connected with wolves. And I feel that that connection has carried on throughout my life. So it was half joke of the court, so to say, because there is a connection. I, 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 I personally feel it, that there is that energy of wolves and mountain and, and everything that I grew up with and the circumstances that I was in when I was a kid. I carry that with me. Uh, I carry that with me. So, and that helps me, I think that helps me uh, um, find that energy when I need it. You know, with that, that dynamic energy, sometimes it just, uh, um, you know, turns into a, a roar or an outburst, but uh, most of the times it's a useful energy. You know, I really like it. I was, I was starting to think, like, what, were, what are the energies, what are the, um, what are the similar energies or, like, uh, spirit animals of, of other great players? I think it's something, something to potentially dig into there, you know? I think the the divine, the um, the forces of nature in life, you know, are, it's a it's an actual real thing. You were talking about the moon, um, the phases of the moon recently. You mm -hmm. said the moon's no longer in Capricorn. I, I think we're not in. We were in Merc Mercury was in retrograde, but that's mm. not anymore. That was supposed to be a bad time for mm. for everyone, but now now things are back to being okay. And at Roland Garros, Barbara Krajikova was hitting a lot of moon balls, mm. right? Yes. And the ball was going up, you know, closer to the moon and closer to Jana Novotna in heaven and closer to her winning the match. And she did because of the moon and the divine and the influence of the ghost of Novotna. Uh, Krajikova's spirit animal is a human being named Yana, Yana Novotna and she connects yep. to Yana 
via the moon balls that she hits during a match, which just disrupt play. I love it. They, they collect the spiritual energy from heaven and return it to this earthly field of play. Right. Yeah, and I've noticed a few other players maybe hitting, throwing a few moon balls into the rallies every now and then. As a, it's sort of an old school thing. The players don't really hit moon balls anymore, but a few people are doing it um, just to disrupt play, and it's uh, it's interesting when that happens. Um, but, but getting back to spirit animals, uh, yes, I wonder what other animals are associated with players. I imagine Rafa Nadal's spirit animal is like a bull. You know, he's got the, like the the Spanish bull, the toreador energy going on you know the the charging the relentlessness um and you know and Federer I kind of imagine is some kind of some kind of big cat a panther panther I don't want to commit too soon to the to one big cat but he's definitely some kind of you know like not not, he's definitely not like the the biggest tiger in the jungle but it's yeah like a panther like or like a sleek mountain lion something that you know moves with with effortless grace, but also hidden strength and, and fury. Radicano, 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 earth ball low and moon ball high, living surface sacrifice, bull and wolf and mountain cat from dirt to plant and plant to dirt, live and die, live and die, Radicano, Radicano, Radicano.